Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. And those who are going to Little Worship, uh, y'all can be dismissed at this time. Um, and as y'all are, are heading that way, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, uh, or of course you can follow along right there in your bulletin, Luke 18, 9 through uh, 14. Um, let's pray as we, um, as we transition here. Oh Lord, may the Spirit come and cause the gospel light to shine into the shadows uh, of our thinking, uh, the shadows of our souls, uh, and spread uh, your gospel light as we spend this time in your word. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. So uh, last week, Jesus told a parable. Uh, if you were here, remember it was a parable to show uh, that uh, persistence in prayer tells us a lot about what we think about God, that we don't pray regularly and persistently because God does, doesn't listen or He isn't good. But no, we, we, we pray regularly and persistently because God does listen and because He is good. All right, well, this morning, Jesus is he's continuing teaching us about prayer. But in this parable, He wants us to see that prayer doesn't just reveal what we think about God, but it also reveals a whole lot about what we think about ourselves that the way we pray reveals a lot more about our own souls than we, than we can imagine. And so with that, let's go to Jesus' teaching, uh, Luke, Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is God's word given to you because he loves you. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But that tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. You know, talk about a, a, just a haunting parable. This, I mean, this classic parable just for, it, because every one of us can relate to this Pharisee. In some way, in seeking our identity or our value, really based on how we compare to others, right? You know, we're very prone to say some variation of, God, thank you that I am not like so-and-so. God, thank you that I am not like that tax collector. And, and because we're so drawn, just as, as fallen humans, to the comparison game, I think it's important to first zoom out just a little bit this morning and just see the big picture, like biblical teaching on comparison, um, before then second zooming in to see the outworking in, of the lesson in this specific 
parable. So two points where we're going to zoom out for just a little bit, and then second, we're going to just zoom in. Uh, so first, big picture, yeah, I've heard it, <laughs> I've heard it said that comparison is really more of a ladies' issue than it is a men's issue. Have y'all heard that? Um, because after all, men, you know, we really don't compare ourselves to other men, right? We, uh, it, except for when it comes to trucks and, and homes <laughs> and hunting camps and boats and golf handicaps and how well our kids perform academically and how well, oh, how well our kids perform on the athletic field. And we're really, to be honest, really just about anything else, don't we? Uh, in other words, as has been said, this comparison, this isn't like a, a, a girl thing or a guy thing. This is just a thing, right? It is a universal temptation. Because of sin, comparison is almost as natural as breathing to us, isn't it? Uh, one author said, even in elementary, we look around early and we, we see that apparently there's a right way to dress and there's a wrong way to dress. Uh, we look around and we may see that there are some people that, um, that maybe aren't as smart as us and there may be others who are more smart uh, than us. Um, very early in life, we start taking our cues from those around us. <laughs> um, in, in fifth and sixth grade, uh, <laughs> uh, my ears started growing a lot faster than the rest of my body and, and, the, and faster than my head uh, was growing. And so a few boys, you've probably been there, a few, a few boys decided to start calling me elephant ears. And uh, like the only time I've ever gotten in what, I guess what kids would call a fight in, in my entire life uh, was uh, after some guys uh, called me Dumbo and I just snapped, okay? And um, it's weird, these little things. I mean, it sounds silly now, right? But, but that began in me a real tendency to start comparing, this is so weird, like, we're so weird, like, for me to start comparing my ears to everyone else's ears, that was my, like, my daily thing, right? Um, and to some degree, my security or lack thereof uh, was based on, <laughs> was based around ears, okay? And, and look, surely my fifth grade self is not alone, surely I'm not the only one who has these weird comparisons, um, because every single day, I would, I would imagine that most all of us in here are tempted to look to the left and look to the right to see how we are measuring up compared to everybody else. You know, from the jealousy of the wonderful lives our great friends on Facebook seem to be living, all the way down to the self-righteousness we can get when someone we know fails and someone we know blows it morally, and, and, and we think that we're superior. We don't share that with anybody, but we feel it, Right? Either way, uh, I hope what we see is that like, there, <laughs> there is zero win when it comes to comparison. Uh, it's toxic. Either way you, you split it. Uh, one person even said that, put it this way, that, that we live in the land of Ur. Uh, that we look around and there are people who are richer, uh, skinnier, smarter, taller, prettier, happier, hipper, and if you're, you're single, you look around and you see that there are people who are married-er uh, than, than you are. And everywhere we look, we see people living in this land that just have more-er, whatever that is. And, and it, then if, if, if they don't have it, then their spouses sure do. Or their kids have more-er than our kids. And, and to make things even more complex, in this land of-er, we also look around and we see that there are some people who have a little less-er than we do. 
and, and then we can feel superior, right? But either way, you know, when we play the comparison game, our value and our security, our identity is completely tied to a game that's broken. Lock, stock, and barrel from the beginning. It's, it's a trap. And so some of us, if we were to be honest, we have debt because we've spent too long staring at other people's lifestyles and we've come to the conclusion that what we need is what they have. Um, to have more er, I, I need to wear one of those and I need to drive one of those. I need to live in one of those. And so we turn around and all of a sudden, month, month to month, we're fighting to keep our heads above the water, wondering what happened. And all the while, we've just fallen into the comparison trap, into the quicksand of comparison. And look, the same could be said of almost anything. Instead of stewarding the gifts that God has given us, our resources, the bodies even that God has given us for his glory, we become completely consumed with wanting other people's gifts and other people's resources and other people's bodies. And since comparison is a zero-sum game, it, it makes sense then that when we do that, we, we become miserable. It's been said that comparison is the thief of joy. And look, the, de look, the deck is stacked against us. We know that I mean, on our more sober days, we realize that social media and entertainment is just one huge glorified commercial about all the things that we don't have. And if the material things get us that bent out of shape, then how much more so is our soul? Or does our soul get bent out of shape when it comes to uh, comparison? Um, like, like how deadly can it be when, when people become the standard that we look to and follow instead of following Jesus' call to follow him? You know, if, if we, like this Pharisee, also find comfort in comparing our spiritual state to that of others around us, then that is a deadly comfort, right? Um, compared to this tax collector, the Pharisee thought that he was a pretty good guy, that, that God would be crazy. He would be crazy to take that loser tax collector over him. But again, like, what's the standard? Is it, is it fallen humans or the holy God? Because one will give false comfort and to be honest, inevitable despair, while the other will show reality that you are more sinful than you could ever, ever believe. And you, we, need grace and salvation to ever be whole. And so this parable is teaching us pretty profoundly that you can't be too bad for God to save you. Cannot be too bad. But you can be too good. In fact, when Spurgeon preached this passage, he titled his sermon, Too Good to be Saved. All right, well, well all right, back to the, the big picture. And we know this, this whole propensity that we have to compare ourselves, to look to the left and the right, is not new. Actually, one of the, the, the wisest people who ever lived, Solomon, recognized this long ago. And this is what Scott read for us. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon said, he said, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He said, look, as the king, I looked around and I saw that basically everybody is looking to the left and to the right. I saw people determining where they were based on where everyone else was. And so then he gives this famous word picture that's all throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's something that we've all experienced he said this, this comparison game that we like to do, 
is vanity. He says it's, it's meaningless. It is, it's striving after the wind. And so what was Solomon's wise advice to humans who are prone to comparison? Scott read it this morning. He said, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So stated another way, it's better for us to live with one hand open than both hands clenched trying to grasp things that we can't, right? And so in the ancient world, I know many of you know this, in the ancient world, this, this open-handed lifestyle was very much recognizing the fact that it is God who gives and it is God who takes away, right? And so we, we live our lives before the face of God running our race, not everyone else's race. And so can you imagine, like, like, can you imagine the freedom that you would experience of no longer using another person as your reference point? Can you imagine that? Well, that's Solomon's wise counsel, and that is God's call of freedom to his people. Is, is what's your standard? Who are you comparing yourself against? Okay, but like we said, there's much more going on here than just simple comparison, uh, which brings us to our second point. Is let's, let's zoom in and see some more of these soul details that's going on. This is really, this parable is a tale of two sinners, two different prayers, two different <laughs> uh, outcomes. Um, first, and b- before we get to the Pharisee, Look, there's a sliver of, of true prayer here with the Pharisee, right? He begins well enough. It's, it's appropriate for us to thank God um, that he kept us from sin, right? It, it's appropriate that, that we flee temptation like we, we killed sin this day or that in this moment. And to thank God that we haven't fallen into more sin. That's totally appropriate to thank God for his grace in our lives. But we don't get very far into this prayer before we find the true main character of the Pharisee's prayer. Um, it's uh, himself, right? Uh, Leo Tolstoy, uh, many of y'all have read some of his books. He, he's regarded as possibly the greatest novelist of all time, uh, well regarded as that. And unfortunately, uh, Tolstoy also believed that, um, and some. Tolstoy once wrote, <laughs> he said, I am a remarkable man both as regards capacity and eagerness to work. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I. I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. That's his words. Well, the Pharisee seems to have that same lack of awareness that Tolstoy uh, possessed. Because he entered the temple, he walked to a prominent place where everyone could see him. Uh, He didn't kneel. He didn't bow down. He just stood up tall. And when he did pray, he prayed a very self-absorbed prayer. (laughs) The RSV renders the literal sense of the Greek. It says that the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. Um, (laughs) Which at this point, he's not even talking to God anymore, right? And so if you listen to his prayer carefully, it's... it's really just one long pat on his own back, right? It's, um, he didn't ask God for any help. He didn't really offer God any praise or any worship. He just kind of reveled in his own sense of superiority. He said, God, I am not like other people. I am not like this tax collector. You know, Scripture only requires us to fast once a year, the Day of Atonement, right? But 
I fast twice a week. I fast a hundred times more than you tell me to, God. I'm pretty good. And then, and then, you know, Scripture only required tithes on certain things. He says, I tithe everything. I, 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 I. Well, like we said, prayer reveals, well, what we think about God, but it also reveals what we think about ourselves. And for this Pharisee, <laughs> prayer was just a, another reminder of how great of a guy he was. And so before we, we move on to the tax collector, this is really a, a call-out. Jesus is coming through here calling a spade a spade because just like back then today, and we see this, right, that you find somebody who kind of enjoys being the center of attention, maybe remote, some, somewhat gifted. They know how to pray. They appear at least outwardly righteous. And often the church is, is this, uses this word called uh, plat, will platform those people, right? Um, and, and this is just a reminder that sometimes people who appear to be serving God can really just be serving themselves. Because though he had a very religious life, very eloquent prayer, um, and he was seen as a leader in his synagogue, all this Pharisee's worship, it was all about him. Um, you know, I started to call this title, uh, it's titled this sermon, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Um, but we, you know, obviously reasons we didn't do that, but um, he had so much faith in his own ability, so unaware, all right, of his own righteousness that he missed it, that all of his doing more and trying harder didn't mean a hill of beans to God. What God is concerned with is the heart and our awareness of our need of mercy, which brings us to the tax collector. So the tax collector, we're not going to rehearse all the tax collector stuff, um, he didn't have the social capital the Pharisee did. He's scum of, scum of the town. He knew he was a big sinner in need of big mercy. And so in humble realization of that, he didn't come before our holy God like he was large and in charge. No, he was off in the corner, head down, beating his chest, which in ancient times that was a sign of repentance. That was a sign of remorse and just brokenness over sin. And for him, the jig was up. Like, he wasn't playing the comparison game anymore. Uh, instead of comparing himself to others to feel better about himself, he knew that none of that could give him what he really needed. So he measured himself against the perfect holiness of God, and in response to that, he prayed the simplest yet purest gospel cry. Like, this is the cry of salvation. It's God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it, right? It, it's God, it's sinner, and the mercy between us. And what's interesting is in the Greek, I know our, our translation says a sinner, but, but the Greek doesn't say a sinner. In, in the Greek, they, it uses the definite article, which is to say that he's not just any old sinner. Um, he is the sinner. As far as he was concerned, he was the only sinner that mattered. He was the only one in the world. And what's beautiful is he doesn't care what other people say. God is the one who he needs. And what God says is ultimate. And so he's, look, it's, no, it's not Joe Bob or Sally Sue down the street. He needs God. And so notice that the cry is for mercy. And, and look, that, that phrase, be merciful, we, we hear that a lot in the Bible, is really just one verb in the Greek. It's helaskomai. Uh, which, which makes that word so unusual, this, this verb, 
Because it takes a, a couple different gospel realities and kind of mashes them up into this like transformer, Ultron type, type thing. Um, which is how we'll, we'll start closing out. Okay? So remember in the Old Covenant, uh, Scott read it for us this morning. In, in the Old Covenant, uh, once a year the high priest would, would make atonement, would make, bring cleansing for the forgiveness of, of sins, right? And, but first he would make a sacrifice for his own sins, his family's sins. He would slaughter or make, or make a sacrifice. He would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood from that sacrifice on the mercy seat, which was the, the golden lid, the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was, that was called the mercy seat. And then, after doing that, then a hand, you know, hands would be laid on a goat, showing that the sinner's guilt w- was transferred or imputed to that goat. And then that goat was then sacrificed. And again, the priest took the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled the blood again on the mercy seat. And so that, that mercy seat was proof that the atoning sacrifice, that the, the blood had come between God and sinners, that the blood was between, that they were under the blood. And placing it on the, the mercy seat accomplished two things, and the, the theological technical terms of these two things the blood accomplished is, uh, one, expiation, and then two, propitiation. Josh read about that this morning. Um, so first, so important, expiation simply means covering, right? Because of the sacrifice, the sins of God's people were covered over. That's what David's getting at in Psalm 32 when he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's what was going on at the mercy seat. And then second, uh, propitiation means the, the turning away of God's wrath. Um, you know, so if you take those two words and combine them, it means when the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the sinner was not only covered, but God's wrath towards the sinner was satisfied so that the sinner now only received God's favor. And so knowing this, not only was this tax collector, he knew that he was a sinner, but he knew that God's wrath was on him. And so he cried out, literally, the literal rendering is, God, may you be mercy seated to me, the sinner. And y'all, that's the gospel. Again, holy God, sinners like me and you, and the mercy between us. So Jesus says, I tell you, it it wasn't the do good, try harder who got it. No, it was the sinner in whom God was mercy seated who got the favor of God that day. And so, Mr. I I just want to end with a question and an invitation this morning. The question is, has God been mercy seated to you? Y'all, that's what matters more than any comparison game that we play. Do you really believe that when the gospel says Jesus died for your sins, it means that his sacrificial death accomplished for you what the blood on the mercy seat once did? That it's not anything that you do, but what he has done, it, it is his blood shed for you that covers over and satisfies God's wrath. So that if you are in Christ, like this tax collector, we, we live life kind of holding two fundamental realities at the same time. The first one is that we are a sinner in need of mercy, right? But then the second thing that we hold is because of God's mercy, 
you are a forgiven sinner. At the same time, you are a forgiven sinner. Or as God would say, beloved, you are the beloved. So in Christ, when God sees you, it's that expiation factor. He sees nothing but the blood of Jesus. It covers you. And then he bestows upon you the propitiation factor. He bestows upon you the smiling face of his favor. And y'all, that is the gospel. And that is the sweetest reality the human heart can ever experience. It's God and sinner reconciled, right? And so if, if you've not experienced the sweetness, here's the invitation this morning. In response to the gospel call, would you stop looking to the left and to the right, trying to get your value and identity and kind of measure up? And would you just go to the source? Would you join our, our friend, the tax collector, this morning in praying, God, may you be mercy seated to me, the sinner? Well, look, I, I want to give us time to do that this morning. Um, I want to give us time to go there. And so let's, let's spend just a, a brief moment of, of silent prayer, uh, and then I'll close this out in prayer. How about that? Let's pray. Father, we cry out and ask that you would continue to call sons and daughters home, that you would call the prodigals back to your mercy. Now, Father, too long have we sought comfort and value and rest in others, and yet it's only gotten us deeper into the comparison trap. But Father, may you teach us deep um, the reality that our souls will be restless until they find their rest in you. So, Father, may you come, and Spirit, may you convict and convince us of our need of mercy, and then apply the gospel to our hearts so we may know true value and true worth and true identity in your grace. And all God's people said, amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.